talk about a very big question this morning. <clears throat> what is the ultimate purpose of missions? And if we're going to ask such a big question, we'd better let God answer it for us from the scriptures. I'm going to point to two passages. They could be multiplied significantly, but we're going to narrow our attention to two as we think about the ultimate purpose of missions. David writes in Psalm 22, verse 27, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. David gets at the ultimate purpose of missions in a nutshell. It's that all the families of the earth, people from all the nations, would worship God. John Piper was right to start his book on missions, Let the Nations Be Glad, with the line, Missions exists because worship doesn't. And so it's true that the, the great purpose of God is to bring about His exaltation, His worship among all the peoples on the planet. And if we ask the question, what will it look like when the, minish, with the, when the mission is over? What will it look like when the mission is finished? The Bible gives us a picture of that as well. The Apostle John saw a vision of what it would look like when it's over. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9, John describes what he saw in a vision. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is what it will look like when the mission is over, when the mission is finished. People from every tribe, every tongue, every place on the planet will be worshiping God and the Lamb. And that is what we're moving toward. That is the mission of God. We speak of missions plural, and we're trying to get at the variety of ways that followers of Jesus engage with this grand mission singular. God has one mission that He has been working toward since creation. He planned it even before creation. And so I want to turn our attention to one passage of Scripture that highlights and elaborates on this great purpose of missions from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 45, if you want to open your Bibles there, that would be a good idea. I'll give us a, an orientation to where we are in the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah's been a, oh, I don't want to say obsession, that sounds too negative, but uh, it's been a, an interest of mine that I've spent my own study time, personal study time over the past few years, kind of marinating and swimming around in. And so every time I have an opportunity outside of a teaching block or a sermon series, I might be drawn to the book of Isaiah. And this passage in particular was a little bit surprising to me initially when I started thinking about it, but the more that I looked at it, the more it became apparent how fitting it is to think about the ultimate purpose of missions from this passage. Isaiah the man, the prophet, lived in the 700s B.C. into the 600s B.C. His ministry, his prophetic ministry can be dated pretty specifically to 740 B.C. through about 680 B.C. A long, long time of ministry. And his preaching was focused on the southern kingdom Judah and its kings. 
And so the book of Isaiah is a collection of the messages that he preached orally, at least largely, that he wrote down in a certain sequence. They are not in chronological order. It becomes pretty apparent as you read the book. But he's put them together in a certain sequence and in a certain way so that we see the big picture about God and his ultimate plan in this world. The first 39 chapters of the book are collections of his messages that he delivered orally during his ministry, during his lifetime. And if you read through those 39 chapters, the large accent of those messages is judgment. There are glimmers of hope, but chapters 1 through 39 are pretty grim and pretty dark as he announces to the southern kingdom that God is going to bring judgment against them if they do not repent, if they do not turn away from their constant rebellion against God. And if you think about that time frame, 740 B.C. to 680 B.C., Isaiah lived through and witnessed the destruction of the northern kingdom Israel. He witnessed it and witnessed the exile as the Assyrians came into the northern kingdom and scattered the people of Israel throughout the Assyrian kingdom. And Isaiah prophesied that event, but he also, after it happened, would look back on that event and use it as a warning for the southern kingdom. He would say to them repeatedly, you saw what happened to the northern kingdom, how God brought judgment against them. If you don't stop acting like them, that's going to happen to you as well. Now, if you remember Isaiah's calling, he tells about that in Isaiah chapter 6, the great vision that he experienced in the temple. He was told up front and directly that his his message was going to be rejected by the people. So though Isaiah stood up and faithfully discharged his calling, he preached knowing that people would not listen. Imagine that. He preached faithfully, announced the judgment to come, constantly and faithfully, and yet the people rejected him. He knew that they were going to go into exile. And about a hundred years after he died and was gone, that's exactly what happened. The Babylonians came into the southern kingdom Judah, wiped them out, destroyed the temple and Jerusalem, and exiled them throughout the Babylonian empire. Well, In chapter 40 of the book of Isaiah, a significant turn happens. And it seems that what we have in the chapter 40 through the end of the book, largely, is Isaiah addressing that later generation. He's no longer standing up before the people of his own day delivering these messages orally. Instead, he's writing them down. Almost like a grandfather might write a letter to his granddaughter that is supposed to be when she's like five years old that she's supposed to open on her wedding day. And so he addresses this message to her, giving his hopes for her marriage and his hopes for her children and his hopes for her future life. So it is that God, through the prophet Isaiah, addresses a later generation expressing hope. Chapters 40 through 66 are largely accented by hope and promises of the deliverance that God would bring. Not only does he announce and very clearly specify that he's going to bring the people of Judah, the Jewish people, out of their exile in Babylon. He's going to bring them back to the land of Israel. Not only that, he's going to deal with the problem that caused the exile in the first place, sin. And so Isaiah chapter 40 on through the end of the book is largely about that future, about how God is going to bring his people back into the land and also deal with their sin. 
As we move into the middle of that section, Isaiah 44 and 45, God gets really specific. In fact, this is unique in all of Scripture, I think. I think this is the only time where God, ahead of time, announces the name of a particular human being who would come in the future before he's actually there. Cyrus is the man I'm speaking of. King Cyrus of the Persians would come some 150, 170 years after Isaiah is dead and gone. And I think that's the only time in the Bible that God actually announces ahead of time, before he's born, someone's name. It's a very unique kind of prophecy in that regard. And so God tells him, Cyrus, the king of Persia, is going to be the man that I'm going to choose and use to bring the Jewish people back to the land of Israel. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the restoration that God has in mind for the Jewish people. The restoration involves their transformation, that they would no longer be a rebellious people. If you remember how the story of Israel unfolds as they do return to the land under Cyrus, you can read about it in the book of Ezra, for example, you will find there a people who are still just as sinful and rebellious as they ever were. And they continue to be so, even though God's brought them back to the land, even though God enables them to rebuild the temple, they remain rebellious and sinful. God has yet to deal with the ultimate sin problem. And in the book of Isaiah, in these chapters, he identifies a figure that he refers to as the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh. Now, in chapters 44 uh, and 45, that servant is actually mentioned as the nation Israel itself. But what we see is that they were called to a mission. They were called to be the servant of the Lord, but they failed in their mission. Therefore, God chooses an individual from among them, a man, to be the servant of the Lord who would bring that redemption. We know his name is Jesus. And in Isaiah 45, we're in the midst of all of that. And so we come to a passage that very much highlights the ultimate purpose of the mission of God and therefore the ultimate purpose of missions as we engage in it today. So I invite you to look at verses 18 to 25. Isaiah 45, 18 to 25. For thus says Yahweh who created the heavens, He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, Yahweh? And there is no other God besides me a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in Yahweh it shall be said of me, 
our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In Yahweh, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So, there are some purpose ideas in this text. And if we go back to verse 18, we find God created the world for a purpose. God created the world for a purpose. And what was that purpose? To be inhabited by God's people. God didn't create the world just to be inhabited by anybody. God didn't create the world just to be inhabited by people in general. God created the world to be inhabited by people who were in relationship to Him. God created the world to be full of people who would worship Him alone. If you think about the story of creation in Genesis, you find Him creating Adam and Eve, fellowshipping with Him in the garden, but very quickly you find those people rebelling against Him and rejecting Him. Genesis chapter 3. And how does God respond to that? He exiles them. He sends them out of the Garden of Eden and sends them out into the world, still carrying His image, still carrying the commission to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the world. But the calling was always for them to fill the world with descendants that would worship Him. But that's not what they did. They filled the world with descendants who would be rebellious. Cain would murder Abel. And then the descendants go on and on and commit rebellion and sin against God constantly and continually. And they keep on just dying because of their rebellion against God. But the mission is not over. God doesn't just destroy humanity and say, I'm done with you. I will not work with you any longer. He doesn't also create a second plan. He doesn't say, well, you guys stink. I'll just try again and start over with somebody else. Instead, the mission keeps going forward. There is no plan B with God. There's only one plan. He formulated it before the foundations of the world, and He will bring it to completion at the end. Period. He didn't shift and say, well, i got to come up with a new plan, a better plan. He kept on moving along with the plan that He originally designed. The next major phase of that plan has to do with the people of Israel. In verse 19, we see a hint of that here in Isaiah 45. God summoned Israel for a purpose. God summoned Israel for a purpose. We see it kind of negatively stated here in Isaiah. Uh, He says, I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. So he didn't call the people of Israel for no purpose. He didn't say, seek me to no good effect. And so to get at what was the purpose, what was the reason that God called the people of Israel, we have to go to another text. And I'm going to be real brief here and real summary for the sake of time. But ultimately, He called the people of Israel to seek Him and to find Him and ultimately to serve as a priestly kingdom for the nations. I'll draw your attention to Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. I'm not going to read that passage after all, but in Exodus 19... God speaks to the people of Israel and He basically proposes the covenant to them and says, I want to be in relationship to you. I've got commandments for you to obey. I've already rescued you from slavery in Egypt. Now I want to live with you in harmony and fellowship and I've got a job for you to do. And the job description is that you would be a priestly kingdom for the nations. Exodus 19, 6. 
what does it mean for them to be a priestly kingdom? Well, I don't think it's, he's just saying, I'm going to make you as a nation, I'm going to put you in a particular land, and I'm going to establish you as a, as a political entity called the na- a nation, the nation of Israel. And within that nation, there are going to be certain men that I'm going to call up, and they're going to be priests who will intercede with me for the rest of the people and will also carry my word to the rest of the people. That's true, he does that, but that's not the point here in Exodus 19. Instead, he's saying, just like that, within the nation of Israel, the whole nation has a priestly function, so that the whole nation of Israel was supposed to stand between God and the rest of the nations. That was always the mission. It was never about one single people group, one single nation. It's always been about all people, all nations, everywhere. And the calling of Israel was always to be about bringing all the rest of the nations so that the earth will be filled with worshipers of God. Not just in a single plot of land in the Middle East, but that the globe would be full of people who worship God truly and are in a a right relationship with Him. That was always the mission. That was always the goal. And the people of Israel were supposed to fulfill that function. But we sit here with the prophet Isaiah addressing that generation who will be languishing in Babylon, in exile, sitting under the judgment of God for their rebellion against Him and their abandonment of their commission. They did not serve as a priestly kingdom. They elevated themselves above the other kingdoms of the earth and often rejected them and became prejudiced toward them. But ultimately the problem was they worshipped other gods. They became like the other nations. Instead of standing between God and representing God to the rest of the nations and standing up as a representative to represent the nations before God, they became like the other nations and worshipped other gods and abandoned their relationship with God completely. So then in verses 20 to 21, Isaiah turns his attention to those nations directly. And he now summons, God now summons Gentiles for a purpose. Verses 20 and 21 get at this. I want you to look at those verses again and focus in on the way that God, through the prophet, addresses the nations here. He says, Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. That survivor language is very important in the book of Isaiah. It's tied to a major theme in the Bible that we could call the remnant theme. And it's a very important theme in the book of Isaiah itself. But normally we associate that with the remnant of Israel. The theme of the remnant idea that's present in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between is that God always, always, always preserves for Himself a remnant of people who trust Him. God always preserves a remnant for Himself. No matter how things, no how bad things look, we've been going through the book of Judges right now. It's hard to find faithful people in the book of Judges. But the truth of the matter is, even though we don't see them popping up and being featured in the book of Judges, God has preserved for Himself a remnant of faithful people even during the period of the Judges. God always preserves a remnant, a small number of people who are faithful to Him. God does that. God is the one who preserves the remnant and holds them in their faithfulness to God. 
And so it is that as there is a remnant of, the, of Israel, there's also a remnant of the Gentiles. And what you find in the book of Isaiah is that these two groups almost merge in certain ways. So that there is one remnant. There is ultimately one people that God is uniting together from Israel and the nations to be joined together. And Isaiah paints that picture repeatedly in his book. And so it is here that this is a contributor to that theme, that running idea in the book of Isaiah. But the the language of survivors is not just a theological term. It's a literal term. It's the reality that these are people who have survived something terrible. And the reality probably in view is God's ongoing judgment through history. Isaiah's talked about it many, many times, especially in the early chapters of the book of Isaiah. God pours out his wrath during history. God executes judgment in history in the form of international conflicts, in the form of natural disasters that kill people. God pours out His wrath in history. And He's done that. And so the call here is for those who have survived those things. These international conflicts, these natural disasters, the outworking of God's wrath in history hasn't killed everybody. And so the idea is... If you're still alive, you have an opportunity to respond to the call here. And so he calls out to the survivors among the nations, a Gentile remnant, if you will, and invites them to come, come. And he, the purpose for which he summons them is to abandon their idols and to find him to be the only true God and Savior. So he mocks their idolatry in the rest of verse 20. They have no knowledge. They are ignorant who carry about their wooden idols. I mean, think about it. God is supposed to carry people. You're not supposed to carry gods. They're not much of a god if you have to carry them. And so Isaiah, God through Isaiah mocks their idolatry and the fact that they keep on praying to a God who cannot save has no ability to rescue them or deliver them from judgment. And so then, he invites them to himself. And in verse 21, he focuses on his uniqueness. That's really what the mission is all about. Declaring the uniqueness and the solidarity, if you will, that he is the only true God. There is no other. Therefore, there is no other way of salvation. And so it is that he draws attention to himself. He talks about how he, long ago, talked about these things, whether that be talking about raising up Cyrus to deliver the people of Israel, or just the fact that he has told them repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly that he's the only true God and idolatry is stupid. He has said that. He is a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. And so in the rest of the passage, verses 22 to 25, we see God summoning all to be saved. And ultimately, the guarantee is that all will bow before Him for a purpose. What is that purpose? To give God all the glory. All are called to salvation, and all ultimately will bow before Him so that He alone gets all the glory. Look at verse 22 again. He calls out to all the ends of the earth and says, Turn to me and be saved, for I am God and there is no other. So he points out that he is the only one who has the power to save. He is the only one that can bring salvation of any kind. 
And so he invites them to turn away from their self, away from themselves and away from their sin, and turn toward him in faith to be saved. That's always been the call. Turn away from your idolatry, turn away from yourself, turn away from your sin, and turn to God in faith and be rescued, delivered, saved. And then he swears in verse 23. Since there is no other God and there's no one greater than this God, he has to swear by himself to guarantee his word. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to, to make it doubly certain, if you will, that he's speaking the truth. And the guarantee, the oath that he swears here might be familiar to you. He says, to me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Some versions use the word allegiance there. The word is a little bit more generic. It's less, it's neutral. It's not a positive term necessarily. You might remember these words being quoted in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul quotes this line from this verse twice in his letters, Romans 14, 11, and more particularly in Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. And if you remember Philippians 2, Paul tells us about the humiliation, the humbling of the Son of God, where the eternal Son of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto or used for his own benefit. Instead, he emptied himself, laid aside his rights as God, came down and took the form of a slave by being born of a woman, took human form, stepped into the world and experience of human weakness, human brokenness, human frailty, and ultimately submitted himself all the way down to death. The one human who has ever lived who didn't deserve to die. He submitted himself voluntarily, freely to death. And not just any death. Not, not the death of old age. Not the death of, of being killed by a superior enemy in battle with all the honor that that might bring. But the shameful death of crucifixion. Being condemned as a criminal wrongly condemned as a criminal and hung on a cross to die. He voluntarily humbled himself all the way to that point. And then Paul says, that's not the end of the story. He's come all the way down to be that low, but then he, so that he could be exalted to the highest place, to sit at the right hand of the throne of God, and then ultimately... Every knee will bow to Him and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. And so if we go back to this call in Isaiah. What's being said here is to, to give an opportunity. You can either bow now willingly and freely or you will be forced to bow on that day. You have an opportunity to bow and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord today. While as long as you are breathing the air of this world, you have an opportunity to bow the knee freely and willingly and acknowledge Jesus as the only true God, the only Savior. But if you put that off, the moment you stop breathing the air of this world, you will find that it is too late. And yet, and yet, you will have your day in court. You will stand before this God, and you will bow the knee. 
And you will acknowledge that He is Lord, but you will not be happy about it. You will hate Him even as you know the truth and are forced to admit it. And you will hate that truth forever. So the call here from Isaiah through Paul and coming to you this morning from the pages of Scripture, freely confess Jesus as Lord now. Bow the knee now. And live your life ever in service to this great Savior. The Isaiah gives us both sides of the picture here at the end of verse at the end of verse twenty four and end of verse twenty five. He says, "To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. All will come to Jesus." But again. If you don't come to Jesus while you're living in this world, you will come before Him at what is called the great white throne in Revelation chapter 20. You don't want to be there, friend. You don't want to find yourself standing before Jesus at that place. You will come and you will be shamed for your rejection of Him throughout your life. These are serious matters. That's the call to the nations. That's a part of the mission, is to proclaim that warning that there is coming a day when God will judge humankind by the man that He has appointed, Jesus Christ. But, verse 25 gives us the alternative. In Yahweh, or by Yahweh, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory or praise Him. So as Isaiah looks out and addresses the people of Israel, the people of Judah, the Jewish people in exile, he says, all the offspring of Israel will be justified. How can this be? He's writing to Jewish people who are sitting in Babylon under the judgment of God. They are being punished. They are being judged for their rebellion against God. How can it be that He can promise that they will be justified, counted righteous? How can that be? Well... Isaiah answers that question for us. If you flip over just a few pages. Isaiah chapter 53. Famous passage perhaps to you. Most of the book of Isaiah is written in Hebrew poetry. But in these latter chapters, Isaiah 40 through 55 or so, we get several distinct songs that the prophet Isaiah was inspired to compose. And they are beautiful. This one, perhaps, is the most famous of them. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. We usually refer to it via shorthand as Isaiah 53. But the song really begins in Isaiah 52, 13. It's the song about the servant that I mentioned earlier. But it's highlighting the suffering of this particular servant. And if we ask the question, which we should, how can it be 
that an offer of justification would be given to the people of Israel languishing in exile under God's judgment. How can it be that God would do that? How can God, the righteous judge, the righteous God, how can it be that He would offer justification to those sitting under His judgment? Here's your answer. Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him, to crush the servant. He has put him to grief. Yahweh has put the servant to grief. When his soul, the servant's soul, makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul... He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. How can it be that God would offer a promise of justification for the offspring of Israel who sit under his judgment, languishing in their rebellion? This is how he will bring about a servant, an individual Jewish man, who will be crushed by God, shattered into pieces, broken down and executed. He will make, he will offer himself as a guilt offering. The servant will offer himself a human sacrifice as a guilt offering. If you want to read about what a guilt offering is and what it does among the people of Israel, you can read the last half of Leviticus chapter 5. But just from the name of it, I'm sure you can deduce what it's about. It is an offering, a sacrifice that removes guilt. But in Leviticus 5, with an animal that is offered in the place of the sinner, the worshiper, it's only the guilt for a particular sin that is removed. Here, the servant accomplishes an offering that will remove all guilt, all guilt from the sinners. And so it is that he will offer himself as this guilt offering. And then it says in verse 10, he shall see his offspring. How is he going to see his offspring if he's dead? Well, he's not. He must rise from the dead to be able to see his offspring. And so how is it that the offspring of Israel can receive justification from God? They must become the offspring of the servant. And if that is the hope for the offspring of Israel languishing in exile, then you better be sure that is the hope of all the nations as well. This guilt offering is not just for the people of Israel, this guilt offering has universal significance. And so if anyone, anyone from all nations, from all the ends of the earth, wants to be justified, counted righteous, not just innocent, not just innocent, but righteous, the only way to do that is to become the offspring of the servant. How do you do that? 
Well, the book of Isaiah implies it and states it more or less in several places, but we won't turn there. But of course, the Apostle Paul spells it out for us repeatedly. To receive this verdict of justification, there must be faith. We must trust this servant, the man we know of as Jesus. We must trust him. And that is what provides the verdict of righteous over your life. No matter what you've done, no matter what kind of rebellion or sin you've committed, the offer is there for all who will trust this servant and his work on our behalf. And so it is that it's the servant and his work, the servant and his knowledge that will make many to be accounted righteous. And again, how does he do that? The last line of verse 11, he bears their iniquities. He bears their iniquities. He carries their sin and the guilt of their sin on his shoulders. He carried it on the cross 2,000 years ago. All of it. And he could do that because he had no sin of his own to carry. And so he offered freely, voluntarily, graciously to carry ours and to experience a death that he did not deserve. And so it is that God alone gets the glory. If we are to be counted righteous, if we are to find ourselves among the many here whom the servant will count righteous, the offspring of the servant, we must trust him. We must turn to him and be saved as the invitation goes. Now, as we think about this as the ultimate purpose of missions, the work of Jesus on the cross is crucial to accomplishing that work. If God is to be glorified by all people, if God is to be worshipped by people from all nations, then they can have no hand in bringing about their salvation. They have nothing to bring. The offspring of Israel languishing in exile, they've got nothing to commend themselves to God, and neither do you, and neither do I. And so it is that if we are to be saved, if we are to be rescued, if we are to be justified, He gets all the glory for that. He did the work. He sent His Son to die on the cross. You don't have to die because He did. You've got nothing to offer, nothing to take credit for, and so God alone gets all the glory for the accomplishment of this mission. And truly, when Jesus died on the cross and He said those famous words, it is finished, we might as well put a stamp on that image that says, mission accomplished. And yet, there is the mop-up operation. There is the completion of the mission. And that's where we are now. But the work has been done. The victory has been won. Righteousness has been achieved by the Son of God. And so it is for those of us who are following this servant, this Savior, connected to Him by our faith, how are we caught up in the grand purpose of God? How are we? Notice I didn't say, how can you be? How are we? The truth of the matter is, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been caught up in the grand purpose of God. You are a part of the mission. And so the calling then and the question this morning that I'd like to consider in our last few minutes together is, how do you participate? How do you participate? How are you participating? How can you participate if you're not? And if you are, how can you participate more? 
Now, I want to take just a moment to step aside from this before we dive in to what I have to say. I've got four points to give you, four things to address you with. But before I say that, I'm pretty sure that some of you in this room feel like you are doing all that you can possibly do for the kingdom of God already. And the last thing that you want is a preacher on Sunday morning to stand up and tell you to do more. Or some of you may be feeling, I can't do any more and I just feel guilty. I just feel guilty because I can't do any more. And I want to say to you, don't wallow in feelings of guilt. I just told you about this servant who took away all your guilt. Objectively, you are no longer guilty. It's right to feel some measure of remorse when we fail and when we sin. But don't stay there. Don't wallow in it. God has set you free from that. Now, having said that, it is incumbent on me to tell you to do things sometimes from the Scriptures. Jesus gives lots of commands to his followers. But as you hear me tell you that you should do these things and do them more, don't evaluate your performance in comparison to your neighbor. Don't set some arbitrary standard for yourself. Instead, take this as a moment of genuine, careful self-examination between you and the Lord. You may be doing all you need to do right now with what God has given you in this season of your life. That's okay. Hear no condemnation from me by saying, here's some other things you can do, or here's ways you can do it more. There's no condemnation at all. Nothing. So don't feel a weight of guilt, but instead, simply look at your life, look at your walk with God right now, and say, what has God given me? What has God done for me? And what can I do? If you do nothing differently as you walk out this door this morning, you don't need to feel guilty, necessarily. <laughs> Let that be between you and the Lord. But just be honest with yourself. So here you go. Four things, very quickly, that you can do. Let me rattle them off, and then I'll elaborate on them very quickly and very briefly. Four things, four ways for you to be actively participating in God's mission. Pray, speak, give, and go. Pray, speak, give, and go. So, number one, pray, or pray more. And pray both generally and spiritually. Specifically, it is good and right to ask God, as we were taught to do in the model prayer that Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is a way of asking God to finish the mission. That is a way of asking God to finish the mission. And it is right and good to ask God to do things that he said he's going to do. 
In fact, that's a very biblical way of praying. If you ever feel like you don't know what to pray for, just look at something God's promised to do that you don't see happening or you don't see finished yet and ask Him to do that. That's very biblical. Lots of biblical examples of characters in Scripture who pray that way, and so should we. So it's right and good to pray kind of generally. But it's also very good to pray specifically. And one of the great blessings that I've experienced in the last... How long have I been here? Two months? Is being a part of this body and seeing the very real connections that we have with specific people serving in missions over there, across the way. Given that connection, given those relationships, we have very specific things that we can be asking God to do in their lives. And the great thing is, they're really good about communicating to us. They tell us what they need. And so, as you have opportunity, sign up for those newsletters, sign up for those prayer letters, and then take time to actually ask God to do what they need. If you need some very specific tips, you can talk to Bob Baker. He shared with the men yesterday at the men's breakfast a very good, helpful way of praying specifically for missionaries. He can lay those out for you uh, in a way that I'm not going to plagiarize this morning for the sake of time. But we should be praying for them. They need that desperately. They have needs and God is the one who will provide them. So let's be about the business of asking God to do that. So pray. Secondly, speak. Speak. Speak more. Speak clearly and specifically about Jesus. Here's my observation over the years in the different places that I've been and observation in my own life, frankly. It is much easier... I think, for Christians to talk generically and vaguely about God than it is to speak specifically about Jesus. And it's been my experience that when you talk specifically about Jesus, particularly when you're talking to non-believers who don't like Jesus or don't know Jesus, it changes the nature of the conversation significantly when you actually use the name of Jesus like he's a real person actively involved in your life. Do you believe that? If you do, it makes sense that you would talk about him. I, it's much e- And I get it. It's hard for me too. It's much easier. I'm much quicker to talk about my wife to other people because she's right there. <laughs> she's right there. And I can say, go talk to her. You want to know how great she is? Go talk to her. It's a little bit harder to talk about Jesus because he's not right here physically. And I get that. And I experience the awkwardness that it feels. But if I believe that Jesus really is just as real and just as active, even more so than my wife is in my life, it makes sense that I'd actually talk about him that way to other people. And as we talked about in ABF this morning, in Romans, if you were there, we need to be doing that with each other. We need to talk to each other about Jesus specifically and the gospel. And here's the thing. If we don't, if we're not comfortable to talk about Jesus with each other, how comfortable do you think we're going to get to talk about him with people who don't know him? This is like practice (laughs) in a lot of ways. We have the freedom and the ability to talk openly and freely about Jesus and hopefully no one will look at you awkward. Hopefully no one will kind of roll their eyes at you because you said the name of Jesus around here. 
So let me encourage you, challenge you to look at your life. Just look at the past week or even just take a day before you lay down in your pillow tonight. Just look at your day and think back through the conversations that you had today and think, how many times did I actually mention the name of Jesus in conversation? If you do that, you will know what to do afterward. So speak more, speak clearly and specifically about Jesus. That's the mission, folks, to talk about Jesus, right? The gospel is about what God has done in Jesus, not generically, but specific events 2,000 years ago. If you're not talking about those events, if you're not talking about that person, then you're not sharing the gospel. You're not communicating the one message that can save their souls if you're not talking about Jesus. So... Let's do it. Number three, give. Give more if you can and give generally and specifically. It is good to give money and time and resources to organizations that are out there doing work that promotes the kingdom and the spread of the gospel. It is a good thing to do that. And we ought to do that as God blesses us and provides resources with us. He provides those things for us to share with others. And so let's be doing that. But also, again, going back to our connection with real missions and real missionaries who have real needs, on occasion those needs are financial and resource related. And so every time you read about or hear about a need, this is, this is all you need to do. Simply, honestly say, has God given me resources that I can share to meet this need or at least to meet part of this need? That's it. When you see a need, ask God honestly and carefully, can I help meet this need? And then respond accordingly. Finally, number four, go. And go more often, locally and abroad. So when we think about missions, it's pretty easy to think about going 10,000 miles away. In fact, when we think about the Great Commission in Matthew 28... Verses 19 and 20, it begins, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And so when we see that word go, we can think, well, that means go across borders, go across the world. You may know that the only command in the Great Commission, technically, is make disciples. Everything that else that's in the Great Commission is, how do you do that? So how do you make disciples? By going, by baptizing, and by teaching. That's how you make disciples. Going, baptizing, and teaching. So what does going mean? Well, yeah, it could mean go 10,000 miles away, but it also just means move outwardly. Move outside of yourself. Move toward somebody else. That can be in your home. I mean, if missions isn't going on in your home, how is it going to go on in the neighborhood or... In the world. I mean, many of you have young children who haven't come to faith in Christ yet. You ought to look at them as people who need to hear about Jesus, right? And be talking about Jesus and sharing the gospel with them and making disciples of them. That's where it starts. But then move outward from there to your backyard and to the person across the street. And then if you have opportunity, go 10,000 miles away. Go to Jamaica. Go to Brazil. Go to the Philippines. Go. Go! (laughs) As God provides you opportunities and resources, go. The whole world really is in God's hands. 
really is. Psalm 135, 6 is one of my favorite verses in Scripture. Whatever Yahweh pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. The mission is His to complete. The purposes are His to accomplish. The church is Jesus's to build. As the prophet Habakkuk says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. That is a promise. That is the end goal. God wondrously chooses to use weak, broken, sinful people to accomplish His purposes. Paul uses the image image of a jar of clay, a clay pot, cracked, broken, and ugly, as a container for the most powerful and beautiful message in the universe. Marvel at that, because that's you, individually. What will it take to motivate us to passionately participate? The late John Stott suggested, the highest of all missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, but rather zeal, burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. When the mission is over, it will be, as Daniel saw in his great vision in Daniel chapter 7 concerning Jesus, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And then Daniel adds later in chapter 7, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Would you pray with me toward the completion of the mission? Father, we look to You for hope in our own lives and in the world. You are the only true God. You are the only Savior. Would You help us to be involved? Would You help us to participate as would delight You to use such people as us, broken and frail, weak and powerless, because then You get all the glory. It will be clear on the last day when the mission is over that You have done this, and we will worship You And indeed, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you bring that about in our lifetime? Would you bring it about that many who don't know you would bow the knee now in their life before it's too late? Father, give us a zeal for your glory, a zeal for the glory and fame of your Son in this world. Help us to speak well of Him and to speak often of Him. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.